0: Kids, you are dismissed for a gospel project. Hope you have a great time. And uh, everybody else, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to uh, Philippians chapter 2. We will finish out this uh, chapter today. So Philippians 2, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. Feel free to take that with you as a gift. We'd love it if you would spend time uh, in the scriptures. So we've encountered some amazing truths in Philippians thus far, haven't we? It's a really great, wonderful uh, book. Thank you to uh, Brian, Jerry, for preaching last week. Jill and I were in Costa Rica celebrating our 20th anniversary. So, yes. She does not look like she's been married 20 years, Um, but I do. Today we come uh, frankly to a passage in the book of Philippians chapter two that seems at first reading like quite a snoozer. Nobody's favorite verse is in this section of verses. Uh, I don't know anybody that's memorized it. Not a single time have I ever been asked a question about these verses. Aren't you glad you came today? (laughs) Philippians two, Is what's known, this section, verse 19 to 30, is what's known as a travel log. And honestly, it seems completely irrelevant to us. It's talking about a guy named Timothy, and we'll read it in a second, but it says Timothy's not coming now, maybe he'll come later. And Epaphroditus, you didn't think he was going to come, but he is going to come now, not later. There you go. That's Philippians 2, 19 through 30. Travel plans about dead guys 1,900 years ago. Now, for the four or five of us in the room that find history and the backstory, the context behind these passages interesting, this is a great passage. But is there something here for the rest of us? Well, a few questions that might help set up the passage. Specifically, those in the room who are are Christians So brothers and sisters, do you want to learn how to live an honorable, God-glorifying, humble life? That's something you're interested in. Do you long to be good citizens of heaven while living in Tempe, Arizona? Are you sick of nominal cultural Christianity? And do you want to know what the real thing actually looks like? Do you yearn for God's priorities to become yours? Well, if any of those strike you as things you're interested in, then this travel log actually has much to say to you. Because at one, in, at one level, Paul's intent in these verses is to tell the church in Philippi, here's what's going on. Here's the plans that I have. Uh, we're blessed as a church to have quite a few people who are involved in parachurch ministries. So ministries that help serve the greater body of Christ through some specific ministry outside of a local church. We have lots of people in this church doing that. It's wonderful. The majority of them live on support from other brothers and sisters in Christ. And lots of them will send out a newsletter once a month or once a quarter that says, here's who we are, what's going on in our family, what's happening in the ministry, some plans that are coming up for you to be praying for. That's, at one level, all that Paul's doing here is he's sending out a monthly newsletter in what we would call a report. So much like a missionary would do that today, Paul does it. But there's a lot more here than that. Normally when Paul does this, like say in the books of 1 Corinthians or Romans, for example, this kind of stuff comes at the very end of the book. So the, the travel log and all the shout-outs to who's doing what happen at the end. But in Philippians, it's right here in the middle. Why? Why is it there? Well, there's a specific reason. Right in the middle of the letter, we get what normally happens at the end. Why? Well, remember that the Bible is is not just a book. It's a collection of books, 66 of them. And many of them were letters written by a church leader to a church. So everything from Romans through the end of the Bible is in there specifically written to a church or a leader of a church. Philippians was written to? You are brilliant people. Just amazing. But remember, it wasn't written with chapter numbers and verse numbers. It was a letter written to a church who would have heard it first just being read to them. So, If we go back a little bit to something we've already looked at, then I think you can see the flow of Paul's argument and it will make this, uh, frankly, uh, one of the most helpful messages we will likely do in the entire book. So look at Philippians two, verse two. We followed this a couple of weeks ago. It says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and with one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Can you imagine actually doing that? That that's nothing you're doing is so that you will be thought of in a particular way by the person you're doing it for. Wouldn't that be marvelous? It'd be amazing to actually live like that. And Paul says to the whole church, as you relate to each other, do everything you do, not from selfish ambition. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out for his own not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. That is, the main command in chapter two is: do nothing from selfishness. Do everything to consider the rest of the church more important than you. And then what does he do? Well, the last several weeks, what we've looked at is he gives Jesus as the ultimate example of somebody who does that. And then he gives more examples of how to live that out, which is what Brian talked about last week. And then this week, we get to this travel log. Dead people going, though we weren't dead at the time, of course, going one place, one going another. Why is it there? Well, it's actually rather brilliant. Brilliant. Because Paul takes the normal little stuff of life, the plans of who's going where and why, he puts them in the middle in order to say to us, here are real life, concrete, you can see them, examples of what it looks like to live a life of humble servanthood. There is this sense in which he holds Jesus up and we get this exalted view of Christ and we're told, do what Jesus did. But that's rather intimidating, isn't it? You're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. Jesus is God. Of course Jesus could perfectly live a life not of selfish ambition, but of humility and servanthood. But yet that's what we're aspiring to. And I think what Paul does is he throws all the rest of us normal people a little bit of a bone. And he says, here, here's just some other regular dudes. They too live the kind of life that Jesus lived. They're examples of not counting yourself all that important, but counting other people as more significant than yourselves. They're humble, courageous, worthy examples of God's call on every single one of us who are Believers, that we would live our lives poured out for the good of people and the spread of the gospel. Isn't that smart? I'm not near smart enough to have thought, I'm going to tell my plans about who's going where in such a way that they will serve as an example for all of how to live. It's brilliant. So it's not all that boring after all. Philippians 2, verse 19, we'll spend the morning talking about two people and then working it out in our experience together. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself will come also. If you've spent any time in the scriptures, you likely remember there's a couple of books named after someone named Timothy. First Timothy, second Timothy. That's the same guy. Timothy was a longtime companion of Paul. And eventually, he served for a season of time as the lead pastor in the church of Ephesus. So between the two of them, Paul and Timothy, much of the material in the New Testament we have is covered. When you piece together the whole biblical account of this guy, one thing that's really critical to know about Timothy is his father was a non-believing Greek and his mother was a believing Jewish woman. That would have been uncommon at this point in time to have people of different ethnicities marrying and especially to have people of different faiths marrying. A lack of faith is still faith. It's faith that there isn't God. You you can't escape belief. Everybody has beliefs. It's just if we recognize it or not. But his father didn't believe in God and his mother did. God saved Timothy, likely as an adult, through Paul's first mission trip, and they became very close. So friends, if you came to Christ later in life than you might have wished, Timothy's a great example for you. The temptation to feel, I don't know enough, I didn't grow up hearing this stuff, there's no way I can actually be useful to my church. It's tremendously strong. That temptation is present. But here's Timothy. His father doesn't even follow God. And he becomes a Christian as an adult. And he ends up becoming a close friend of one of the most important believers that's ever lived. And he passed church. Friend, what could God do with you? Whether you come to Christ at 10 or at 60, it doesn't matter. It's that you came to Christ, right? And God's desire would be to use you for the furtherance of his gospel, just like he used Timothy. So maybe you don't even know your dad. Or maybe your dad doesn't want anything to do with God. Timothy's a brilliant example for us that God can do anything with anyone. Amen? Look at Timothy. When Paul couldn't get away from Rome to go to Philippi because he's in prison. And he thought of, of all the people I know, who would care for this church the most? The person he thought of was Timothy. And yet, he doesn't send him, why? Did you catch it? Not rhetorical. He doesn't send him, why doesn't he send him? Not a trick question either. He says, because I gotta see how it's gonna go with me. What does that mean it means i'm chained to a roman guard i can't go anywhere and i have a trial coming up and they're either going to let me go or they're going to kill me and i'm living with that every day and i need somebody who will stay with me check on me pray with me encourage me listen to me and i need timothy I also find that to be tremendously encouraging. Here this giant of a man, Paul, needed the encouragement of another brother in Christ. This is Paul's right-hand man, and he came to Christ as an adult. He didn't grow up with a father that loved the Lord and helped him learn to love the Lord. It's never too late to become a follower of Christ and be used by him. Because as God transformed Timothy with the gospel. He became a man of compassion, and he became a man of companionship. You see, in verse 20, he said that he'd be genuinely concerned about how the church was doing. He had the right priorities. He was compassionate. And then in verse 22, "As as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. He's a companion of Paul. What a description of a person's life. Right? Wouldn't it be great to be thought of like that. A person who's genuinely concerned with the people of God, and a person who is a companion to others. The picture is that he's a compassionate, others-oriented, loving man. Timothy lived this kind of life because his needs were already met by Christ. A lot of us struggle. To serve others in practical ways. Why? Well, most often it's because we're looking to them to meet our needs. We're not confident that our needs are already met in Christ. And that's scary and intimidating, and we get hurt by people, and so we just back away and we don't do it. But Timothy didn't have that experience because Timothy's needs were met by Christ through the gospel. He was then freed to serve, to love. What an example he is for us. Now, before we go on to Epaphroditus, the next guy, look closely at verse 22. Let me read it one more time. You know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Outside of Jesus Christ, no one in the history of the church has made a bigger impact than the Apostle Paul. Nobody. And Paul led Timothy to Christ. So he was a Christian before him. He had a much bigger impact than him. And Paul was the guy, when he walked in a room, everybody looked to for leadership, for wisdom, for counsel. And yet he uses the word with. Timothy serves with me in the gospel. This is a brilliant theologian, the world's greatest missionary. He's written more books of the Bible than anybody else. And he takes this little guy named Timothy, who is a scaredy cat. In in the letter he writes to him in 1 Timothy, he says essentially, quit being afraid, stop being afraid. Are any of you ever afraid? you have a friend you know you ought to share the gospel with? you don't do it why? Because you're afraid you, you hear us say we're a little behind in the budget you don't you don't give why you're afraid there's a car stopped on the road it, Jill and I, as we were in Costa Rica last week, I thought it was a leaf, but it was a big rock in the road. It looked, they have big leaves there, like massive leaves, but it was a rock. So I hit it going pretty fast, and the tire exploded. So we pull over on the side of the road, and highways there are they're, they're two-lane roads, and everybody goes as fast as their hearts want. It's wonderful. And there are motorcycles zooming in and out, and the shoulders are like this big. So we pull over, and I'm trying to change the tire. Four people stopped and offered to help within a span of about five minutes. Four people. A couple of weeks ago, I was getting off the highway at Mill and stopped in the ramp to get off the exit, is a car, stopped, just windows down, the person's just sitting in there. So I had just preached, this was a Monday morning, the day before I preached a message about servanthood. I don't want to help this person with their car. <laughs> I, I know where the gas goes and the key goes, that's it. So, but I parked the car, Dad gummit, the message is talking to me too. I go over and I say to this woman sitting in the car, can I help you? And she says, I've been sitting here 30 minutes, you're the first person in test. So five peop- four people in less than five minutes, 30 minutes, this lady's sitting on the highway. Isn't that awful? It's awful. So let's all move to Costa Rica. No, that's not my point. Paul says in humility, in humility, he served with me. Now, I couldn't get the dadgum lug nuts off. I'm jumping on the jack, and this guy stops. We we'd kind of grunt at each other because we can't speak the same language, and he changes the tire. It's like that guy goes and <laughs> he could say, I met this idiot gringo on the side of the road who can't change a tire. But it's as though he would go and sit with a friend and say, That white guy served with me in changing the tire. He didn't need me. Paul didn't need Timothy. But he says he served with me. I love the humility in that one little word. Timothy served with me in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, in large part, that's how we grow up in our faith. The day we become Christians, we're infants. But God's design is that the way we would grow, the way we would become adults spiritually, is that we'd serve with each other. That's God's plan. That a man, if you're a man, or a woman, if you're a woman, who's a little bit further along in the faith than you, would say, hey, would you like to meet up with me? Let's read the Bible together. Let's talk about the issues you're facing. Let's pray And then let's go do something for somebody. Let's serve together. This person invites you to learn more about Jesus and to serve with him or her, and step by step by step, you develop and grow in your faith. That's the program, if you will, of the church. That's what church is. It's every Christian man and every Christian woman commissioned by God to work together, to disciple each other, so we grow up in the faith. And the goal of that discipleship isn't to be seen as smart and knowledgeable and admired. Don't make that mistake. It's not about you getting your ego stroked because somebody's looking to you for wisdom. It's about Christ being seen in you and that person growing up and then repeating the process, right? That's the with, that Paul did that with Timothy. And then Timothy repeated the process somewhere else. So the goal of that's multiplication with ministry. That's God's design for his church. So yeah, we see here the plan that Paul gave related to Timothy. He's going to stay with me because I need him, but eventually I'm going to send him to you. But much more than that, he's an example for us to follow. Now let's read about the second guy. He's got a lot cooler name, Epaphroditus. Verse 25. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be a little less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. A little detail here that would help make sense of this. Later in the book of Philippians, so we'll get to this in about a month, Epaphroditus comes up again. And what we learn is that this guy, which by the way, turn to somebody next to you and say Epaphroditus, that's just such a great name. Great job, right? So Epaphroditus is a member in the church of Philippi. And when this church in Philippi heard, our buddy Paul is back in prison again in Rome, they wanted to do something to help him. And so they took up a collection And they said, we need someone from our church to travel that 800 or so miles from Philippi to Rome, give this gift to Paul so that he can eat, and then hang around for a while, care for him, pray for him, love him, bless him, be a companion to him. When the church thought of everybody in our church that we could send, who should we send? They thought of Epaphroditus. And somewhere along the way of that 800 miles or right after he gets to Rome, he comes down with some really terrible sickness. We don't know what it is, but he got so sick, he almost died. And he was sick long enough. Remember, there's no FaceTime. There's no Skype. There's no texting. If you wanted to tell someone something, you had to send somebody. Or you had to write something down and send somebody to deliver it. So he was sick long enough that the news traveled all the way back to Philippi. And so here's this little church wanting to bless this man in Rome and the guy they send gets sick. So sick he's on his deathbed. And they're thinking, oh my goodness, this brother took off work, traveled all that way and now he's almost dead. So Paul says, You sent him here to care for me, but you're worried about him, and he's stressed out for you, so I'm going to send him back to you. Now, who cares, right? These people have long been eaten by worms. They've been dead a long time. Why are we spending time on this? Because it gives us a model for how we're supposed to live. That's why it's stuck here in the middle of this book. I love the way he's described. Look at the words, the word pictures given in verse 25. There's four of them. Paul calls him first, my brother. Epaphroditus was almost certainly named after the Greek goddess of love and fertility, Aphrodite. Do you hear that in his name? So here's a guy that is named after a statue that people prayed to and worshiped so that they could have sex and have babies. Probably very much disconnected from marriage. He's named after this Greek God. The Lord intervenes in his life and saves him. And now Paul's looking at him and he's saying, this is my brother in Christ. So much is caught in little tiny words when we stop and slow down. Friend, do you know of anyone that you think is too far gone? They have done so much, God can't rescue them. Maybe, that's, maybe you feel like that's you. I'm from a messed up family. Most of them are in prison. I'm named after this wicked deity. I'm. God can't save me. Well, think of Epaphroditus, named after Aphrodite. No one is too far gone, ever. God can save anyone. So Paul calls him his brother. God rescued him, God adopted him into his family, he gave him a whole new identity, and now the church in Philippi has become his family. And the broader church, all churches everywhere, has become his extended family. Friends, I wonder if you would consider this. Are your relationships in your church developing that level of depth and intimacy? That people would know your backstory. They would know what you've come from. And that when they're talking about you with somebody else and they just want to bless you, that they would know the right words to use. That's what Paul's doing. He's calling him his brother because he's making him his equal If you're finding that your relationships aren't getting any deeper, it's likely because you're not doing any ministry. You're not serving. Serving together, whether it's informally through relationships in gospel communities or more formally like serving on a team here at the church, those relationships that are formed and then forged through ministry together is what will enable ultimately you to get really close, brothers and sisters kind of close. Now look at that second word that Paul uses, fellow worker. Friends, our job together is to proclaim Christ and grow up in him and help build strong churches together for God's glory. That's what fellow worker means. That's what Christians do. So this is direct, but my intent isn't to be offensive. So I hope you'll consider this. If you think you know God, but you have no interest at all in being a fellow worker, then you need to reconsider if you actually know God. Because what is a Christian? Who, Who are Christians? Well, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. Are you with me? And what do brothers and sisters in Christ do? They do the work of ministry. Because that's who they are. And if you think that by praying a prayer at four, but then nothing changing in your life will actually mean you get into heaven, you're deceived. 1 John tells us that we know we know Christ if we have love for one another. And love for one another will be fleshed out In us being fellow workers together. Epaphroditus was that kind of guy that we know of. He didn't have a title. He wasn't on the payroll of the church. He's a regular guy with an eight to five, but his life is about the gospel and God's people. Paul also called him the third thing there. You'll see he's a fellow soldier. In the spiritual battle of the Christian life, Epaphroditus took some hits, but God used him. And then last, Paul called him a messenger and a minister. Meaning, he came with a message from the church in Philippi. And then he ministered to Paul's needs. Jesus was obedient to the point of death. Epaphroditus was obedient nearly to the point of death. And yet, even in his suffering, even in his illness, Did you catch in the paragraph what his concern was? It was that his church was worried about him. Now, let's be honest. When you're sick, do you care at all about anybody else? A lot of us, if we're sick, we want everybody to know we're sick. And we go out of our way to make it plain we're sick. And we want to be taken care of. It's natural, but not Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is nearly dead, and he's torn up inside because he knows his church back home is worried about him. It's amazing. Think of this brother as a hardworking, sacrificial, battle-worthy, dedicated Christian. There are many of you here like that. But think how much stronger we could become as a church family if there were even more of us like that. Now, what do we do with people like Timothy and Epaphroditus? The temptation when we come across a passage like this in the Bible is to just jump over it to the next thing. But I want to encourage you to slow down and do what the passage actually tells us to do. It tells us to honor people like that, and to imitate them, to honor them and to imitate them. So just a moment on each of those. Paul explicitly told the Philippian church to honor Epaphroditus and people like him. Fellow Christians who serve the cause of Christ well, people dedicated to the ministry of the church, should enjoy hearing fellow Christians encourage them. They should have the blessing of hearing somebody say, thank you for what you've done for me. Now, honestly, that's very un-Phoenician. I've lived a lot of places. And I've never lived somewhere before where kindness and affirmation are so uncommon. This is just not what Phoenicians do. We don't typically go out of our way to encourage and affirm and bless and thank. I don't know what that is here. I don't mean this church. I just mean the town in general. I, and if you're from here and you're a gracious, nice person, then don't get offended and send me emails. I'm not talking to you. But in general, this is not a friendly place. We're much more interested in ourselves and what we have to do than in the people around us. That's why a woman can sit in her car 30 minutes and nobody offer to help. But that gives us as a church an incredibly powerful tool to use for God's glory. Because people crave deep relationships. And deep relationships often are formed as we serve together, we notice one another being developed by God, and then we go out of the way just to say to each other, I see this in you, and I thank God for it. It takes 30 seconds. Paul's saying, that's what the church does for each other. We encourage each other in the Lord. So friends, when when a GC leader or a deacon or a children's volunteer or pastor or mentor makes a sacrifice and you notice it, then go out of your way to say, thank you. God has used you today to bless me. When people put the church's needs above their own, then thank God for them and do it in front of them. It can be a tremendous blessing and joy. The second thing we're told to do here is to imitate. So this travel log in Philippians is there to give us an example of the pattern of joy. Do you remember it? Jesus, others, yourself. One more time. Jesus, others, yourself. That's the kind of life Timothy and Epaphroditus lived. And that's the kind of life all of God's people are called to. So who are you watching? Who are you looking at? Who are you aspiring to be like? Paul says the people best to model your life after are people like Timothy and Epaphroditus. Let Timothy show you how to overcome fear and reach the point that you can live daily to serve rather than use, avoid, and be afraid of people. Let Epaphroditus show you how to risk safety, health, and comfort in order to further God's work. Because in looking at them, ultimately we're looking through them and we're seeing Christ at work, rescuing them, saving them, changing them. So as we look to those of us who are growing in the Lord and try to be like them, that's what this passage is ultimately for. And we're to imitate mature followers of Christ irrespective of the position that they hold. Timothy was a guy with a public ministry. He preached like I am. He developed elders like I'm trying to do. He led a church. He traveled around with Paul. He would have been a person that people knew. That's somebody we can look at and try to be like. But then there's Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was seemingly insignificant. He did not pastor the church in Philippi, he didn't write anything that's still in existence. He wasn't on the payroll of his church. He's a regular guy. And yet Paul holds him up and says, This is a guy to follow. Brothers and sisters, whether God gives you big public influence or private, quiet, behind-the-scenes influence, do it in such a way that God's honored, God's glorified. Because the truth is people are watching. People are paying attention. And the body is made up of many, 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 many more Epaphrodituses than it is Timothy's. It has to be. That's the way God works. And especially in this area of imitation, I would say to the young-ish in the room, I would encourage you especially, go out of your way to seek out two or three people who are older than you, both older chronologically and older in the faith. Seek them out and ask them, mentor me, disciple me, Would you consider doing what Titus 2 says? Could you meet up with me and let's read the Bible together? Help me as a young man or as a young woman to come to know the Lord better. Look for people whose character reminds you of Jesus. Those of us who are young in the room need to hear. We don't know everything. We are served well by people older than us who would help us and walk with us. D.A. Carson put it uh, this way, emulate those who have proved themselves in hardship, not the untested upstart and the self-preening peacock. The older I get, the more I realize what I don't know. I knew way more when I was 20 than I know at 40. Life has a way of testing us. Look for people older than you who can help you grow. Now this is a great passage, isn't it? What seems completely worthless, irrelevant, just skip past it to something else, turns out to be enormously helpful. Friends, the church is to be intensely personal and purposeful. Godly leaders need our support. And we live in a time when we talk about normal things as as though they are extraordinary. So, in the last week, have you heard somebody say, uh, that was an epic show? Or that meal was to die for? Or that was the greatest hit in that baseball game someone has ever made? We talk like that all the time. It's really silly. But there are genuinely extraordinary things happening. They're not the stuff of who hits the baseball the farthest and the meal and the show. They're people being rescued out of sin. They're marriages that look like they're absolutely on death's door being restored. They're people who were selfish, now because of what Christ has done, they're giving their lives away serve. Friends, those things are extraordinary. We close with this quote by a guy named Fred Craddock. He said, I, to give my life for Christ appears glorious. To pour myself out for others, to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom, I'll do it. I'm ready, Lord, to go out in a blaze of glory. We think living and giving our life for the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on the table and saying, here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all. But in reality, for most of us, God sends us to the bank and we cash that $1,000 check for quarters. We go through life putting out 25 cents here, 50 cents there. Listening to the neighbor kid Grumbling instead of saying, get lost. Go into a team meeting. Giving a cup of cold water to a shaky old man in a nursing home. Usually giving our life for Christ isn't glorious. It's all done in little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. It would be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It's harder to give the Christian life little by little over the long haul. That is so true. Timothy and Epaphroditus spent their life giving out quarters. Christians, I hope you'll do the same. Let's pray. Father, thanks for giving us as we work through books of the Bible together as a family, giving us lessons we would not have looked for, giving us truth we didn't know we needed, encouraging us truth that seems so far irrelevant to our lives. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ, particularly the members of this church that Father we would be convicted by your word today and that each of us would consider am I giving out those quarters to the extent that God would want me to? I pray for the young members in the room, that they would be pursuing people who are older so they can grow up in the faith. And Father, I pray especially for friends here today who are unsure about Christ, who haven't yet made a Christian commitment. Father, I pray that they would hear today that Christianity isn't about using the name of Christ in order to gain political power. Christianity is about being rescued by Christ out of sin and then spending the rest of our lives in the pursuit of trying to become more like Him. Not with power, but in humble servanthood. Father, help us apply this well.